Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD candidate at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and other transients. And I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study planetary systems. You're listening to episode 26, Surfing on a Dream. Today, we're talking about oceans on other worlds. Now, we're going to start by exploring (laughs) Titan seas, and then we're going to go way out of the solar system to see if we can explore oceans on exoplanets. To see. But But a word of caution, my dear listener, we are professional surfers, so the stunts we perform on the air (laughs) can be dangerous. Don't try this at home. (laughs) When the Cassini mission to Saturn first detected lakes of methane on the surface of Titan in 2007, everyone went wild. Yeah, Melina, I'm pretty sure they're still going wild about Titan. That is true. But for good reason. (laughs) (laughs) I'm continually astonished by the idea of methane, which exists as an extremely flammable gas on Earth. I mean, it's used as rocket fuel, existing as a vast and pristine ocean on another body in our solar system. I mean, just imagine going for a swim in that. Yeah, that wouldn't end well. Dangerous <laughs> swim. <laughs> but it's it's really incredible because Titan has enormous seas. It's possible to do something that's that's rather incredible. You can look for the sun's reflection off of the seas on Titan and use that to measure properties of the waves and the winds. How about that? Yeah, it's pretty incredible that you can do that on other bodies. This is something that you can also do on Earth with satellites, but... The fact that this is possible on Titan, which is nowhere near, I mean, it's sort of near the Earth, depends on the scales you're looking at, but (laughs) (laughs) the fact that you can do this on Titan is pretty amazing. So we came across this work of detecting sun glint on Titan at the recent meeting of the Division for Planetary Sciences, or DPS, at the American Astronomical Society, Uh, and we attended and presented at this meeting as a podcast and also met Michael Hesler, who's going to be talking to us today about his work on this topic. And if you're wondering, for all our listeners, what glint is, as I was before this interview, it turns out that there's actually a difference between glare and glint. According to the Federal Aviation Authority, or the FAA, glare is a continuous excess brightness, whereas glint is a time-dependent excess of light. So think flashes of light that change based on differences in angle, surface, etc., things like that. Mm-hmm. So glint is kind of cool and glare is kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Both can be valuable. Yeah, as Michael will tell us. Glint, I guess, tells you more about sort of the variable heating that then drives climate dynamics. So I guess that's more interesting for the purpose of planets, moons. This is not a planet. Um, so we're going to hear a lot more about this from Michael. And so we're just going to hand it over now for him to tell us all about how we can study glint on solar system, moons and planets, and specifically on Titan. I'm Michael Hessler. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Idaho, and my pronouns are he, his. 
I guess our first scientific question then, jumping straight in, is what is the main scientific question that you're trying to answer in your work? Pretty much trying to figure out what extent of oceanographic activity is occurring in the largest seas of Titan in particular. And there's many ways to explore that. So obviously looking at the surface uh, manifestation of oceanographic phenomenon like currents and wind waves are the easiest way. And, but there's also many other interactions that can occur from rivers, for instance, rivers flowing into the sea or just tidal currents that can potentially occur due to tidal sloshing mm -hmm. um, going throughout its cycle. So, but that's the big overarching question is to see how active these seas are, so to speak. These phenomena that you're referring to, are these uh, phenomena that we've seen on Earth and we're looking for evidence of similar phenomena on Titan? Or are each of these phenomena things that we previously have evidence for having seen on Titan? So for the most part, the phenomenon that we're looking for, we pretty much see on Earth. However, there are a few unique phenomenon to Titan. And one in particular that's often discussed is bubble exsolution or bubble outgassing from the liquid itself. Nitrogen is dissolvable in liquid methane. So there's phenomenon that has been theorized to occur where we might expect bubble outgassing events, which are otherwise very rare on Earth. The only real relevant example on Earth is like the Lake Neos disaster, where we saw an outgassing of CO2 once it became saturated in the lake. But that's very rare. So for the most part, we're trying to find direct analogs between Titan and Earth. That event killed a lot of people and livestock, right? Yes, the Lake Neos event. Yeah, it was kind of unexpected. Um, and yeah, it was a sudden outgassing. So ultimately, yeah, it just put so much CO2. The concentration of CO2 was, was lethal. When did it happen? I think it was in 1990s, 1994. I'm not sure exactly. And you expect this to be a regular occurrence on Titan? Um, yes. Not necessarily the killing of livestock. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> so on the Earth, was this a water lake? And on Titan, it's not water, right? Yeah, it was a water lake. So it's it's what they call like a sodadic lake, where pretty much it's a lake that usually has some kind of uh, volcanic origins, like there's volcanic seeping of gases into the into the uh, lake where you have a higher concentrations of dissolved gases that you typically see in volcanoes. But on Titan, due to the fact that nitrogen is the main constituent of its atmosphere, we expect the rain to be saturated with nitrogen as well as the lakes, presumably. So could you tell us a little bit more about Titan's oceans? Like how big are they? What percentage of Titan's surface is covered by oceans? And what are they made of? There's three big seas on Titan. So there's basically a bunch of teeny lakes, which are about the size of like local lakes that you have in your regional areas, tens to hundreds of square kilometers in area. Whereas the three big seas, uh, Kraken Mare, Ligia Mare, and Punga Mare, going from largest to smallest, those are about the size of the Great Lakes in terms of the total surface area, that all of them. So these are fairly big seas such that we expect them to not just be lakes, which are just isolated bodies that are just sort of influenced by the winds. We expect tidal exchanges to occur between the lakes because they're connected. Each of the seas are connected by narrow channels or narrow straits that allow for tidal exchanges. Are these seas deep? Yes, so we've measured the depths of Pungamare to be close to 100 meters deep on average. Um, Ligiamare is upwards of 200 meters in depth. And then parts of Kraken Mare, 
we've measured to be close to 80 meters deep. It was actually just a paper that came out just a few days ago that found one of the uh, bays to be about 100 meters deep. But for Kraken Mari, we don't actually know the depth. So they attempted, so the Cassini radar team attempted to measure the depth of Kraken Mari, but they couldn't get a subsurface echo, which either tells us that there was too much ethane in, in Kraken Mari or it's just too deep. Interesting. So at the very least, we think Kraken Mari is at least 100 meters deep, but it's more than likely greater than 300 meters. Wow. If it's more methane based. And the seas are mainly composed of liquid methane. Not something you'd want to swim in. Um, no, no, you'd sink pretty quickly, actually, if you tried stepping in, you'd feel pretty heavy. (laughs) I'm fascinated by the observational methods that you use to Mm -hmm. develop some of these insights. It seems like we know quite a bit about Titan. I'm wondering what kind of data are you looking at to, to yield some of the insights for Titan in your analysis? Sure. Um, so I mainly look at the VIMS instruments, so the visual and infrared mapping spectrometer. Okay. However, we're only limited to select methane atmospheric windows. So there's select wavelengths in particular at 2 microns, at 2.8, and then at 5 microns where we can see clearly to the surface. Because in the visible spectrum, it's just opaque. Like you can't see anything at the surface. So we mostly use near-infrared wavelengths. And this is on the Cassini spacecraft? Um, yeah, this was from the Cassini spacecraft. So Cassini did upwards, they did over 100 flybys of Titan. Before, you know, its mission ended. Yeah, yeah. So over like 10, that's 12-year mission. Yeah, it collected, it did 126 flybys of Titan. Incredible. And wow. yeah, yeah. So, and so we basically got to see half a season of Titan or half a year. So we got to see a transition from southern summer to northern summer. And could you tell us more specifically about what signatures you were looking for in the VIMS data? Yes. So we were looking at a unique type of observation called sun glint. And in this particular observation, we look for the direct reflection of the sun off of the seas of Titan. This is what's going on on Alex's face right now for the <laughs> listeners who can't see. Yeah, I'm experiencing a lot of uh, earth glint. <laughs> yeah, so the specular, so the sun glint is usually blinding, like in Alex's case. <laughs> the, yeah, so there's, a, there's an immediate zone where we don't look at the specular zone because it's so bright that it saturates the VIMS detectors or the VIMS uh, spectrograph. What do you mean by specular? By specular, we means uh, where the incidence angle between the spacecraft, um, Titan's surface, and the sun, uh, where it has the incidence angle equal the uh, emergence angle. Like a mirror. Yeah. And the glint is time dependent, right? It changes over time. And what causes that? Yes. So pretty much just where the spacecraft is determines where the specular reflection will occur. And we have models that can easily predict where these locations are. So it's kind of weird with Titan because, yeah, we have to consider how it's changing because as we take images with the VIMS instrument, we're doing a flyby, we're not orbiting. So we don't have a nice steady position and distance. So we have to take into account the spacecraft has a changing distance and it has a changing viewing geometry. So the incidence angle and emission angle are changing. You mentioned that you're looking for activity and you're using glint to look for it. So does that mean you're trying to figure out how large the waves are or something else? Yes. So in particular, like, so we aren't really interested in the specular or in the sun glint directly. We're interested in these regions surrounding the sun glint because we expect sun glint to be on a perfectly smooth and flat liquid surface. 
we expect that the reflection to be very bright. However, if you go away from the specular point on the surface, if the liquid surface is tilted, which is effectively what a wave would do, um, we can actually see it as a bright spot. And that's what we call sun glitter. Like when you're at the sunset on a beach and you see the sun beam, mm -hmm. you see the sun on the liquid surface, all those little facets that you see on the liquid surface or on the sea surface is, is what we call sun glitter. Okay. So the waves effectively tilt the liquid surface hmm. into a specular geometry. And that can be picked up as a anomalous bright spots surrounding the uh, sun glint region. That's a great way of describing it. I know exactly what you mean since I've, I've had that experience many times on the beach. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, so yeah, that was where the name came from for uh, the feature itself. So ultimately sun glitter is the feature that we're looking for. It's got to be so cool to tell people that you study sun glitter too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. People are, uh, and it's easily, it's pretty relatable too, you know, because I can easily relate it to like common observations. Mm -hmm. Right. Was this method first developed for use on Earth or was it initially designed for looking at other objects in the solar system? Oh, no, this was um, designed way back when satellites were first being introduced into orbit. They had all these observations of sun glint and they were trying to figure out what to do with it. And that they realized pretty quick that they could effectively or very accurately predict wave heights. And that's sort of where it developed. That's amazing. So yeah, so for oceanography, it's been a very key tool. And that's how we effectively get um, maps of wave heights of the entire ocean. Wow. So we effectively use these sun glint observations to get like daily measurements of, of the average wave heights across or on all the oceans of earth that's incredibly cool wow yeah yeah it's, it's pretty mind-blowing when i first learned about it um just how powerful it was like back in the 1980s when they were trying to realize the true potential they actually trained an oceanographer or nasa trained an oceanographer to go to or to become an astronaut just so that they could have an oceanographer actually see the true potential and once he actually went up into orbit he realized that, yes, this is a fundamentally um, instrumental tool that we can use to, to study the dynamics of the ocean surface. So now you have potentially the statistical heights of these waves. Uh, a, are they way higher or way lower than you would expect? And B, what does it tell you about the climate on Titan as a whole? So the wave heights we found to be roughly centimeter scale or centimeter high. So, I mean, these waves are pretty much the equivalent of, like, little ripples that you see on a lake surface. Not great for surfing. No, no that was the unfortunate <laughs> part, when they realized the wave heights are just very, uh, yeah, very boring. <laughs> so, uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, getting caught in a rip current or something <laughs> if you go to the beach, too. <laughs> it's amazing that you can see those, though, even though they're such tiny waves. Yeah, that's sort of the interesting part is very small. So the key with that is that the roughness is larger than the wavelength of the ob or the wavelength of the observation. Right. So as long as you have larger than micron scale roughness, we can easily see it, which Incredible. is kind of crazy to think about. <laughs> what actually causes the waves? Yeah, so that's sort of what my research was basically trying to do was trying to figure out from these observations and looking at the coastal morphology and the location of where the waves actually occur. Yeah, we inferred that one observation definitely looked like a very large scale windswell that was approaching one of the shorelines of Kraken Mare. 
during the T104 flyby. So we're pretty sure we definitely have confirmed surface winds are actively creating large scale waves on the surface, but they're not all over the place. They're just in very isolated coastlines. And by large scale, you mean centimeters heights, right? Um, well, I just mean the extent of the actual wave field. Ah, got so basically it. like a hundred kilometer wide wave field of centimeter high waves. Yeah. Hmm. Approaching a coastline, cool. for cool. instance. Um, but we've also inferred tidal currents as well. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. What do the tides look like? Yes. So pretty much tidal models predicted there are certain locations where we expected tidal currents to be fast enough to create centimeter scale roughness um, if uh, with the currents themselves. So the currents are flowing at like tens of centimeters per second roughly, and that this could cause um, centimeter scale roughness. And what we actually found was we took a few observations of one of the narrow straits that connect the two main basins of Kraken Mare. And we actually saw that sun glint covered the entire region of Selden Freighton. So basically there's very large tidal exchanges through narrow straits. In pretty much every location where the tidal model predicted that there would be currents that we could detect, we did detect them. It's great when the observations just sort of fall perfectly into place and they match exactly what you expected. It's just like <laughs> it's pristine. Rare. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was definitely a unique find when I realized that. <laughs> when I realized like, wow, this is uh, very fitting. <laughs> very easy for me to write up. <laughs> it's also just incredible to take a step back for a second and think about the fact that, I mean, Saturn is what, a billion kilometers from Earth? And we're able to characterize it's the height of the waves on Titan to the scale of centimeters. That's amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure none of the Cassini scientists ever thought that was going to be possible. <laughs> like, like, they just never had that thought in mind. Like, they knew there might be liquid seas there or, like, oceans. But, yeah, it is truly crazy to think that we can detect it and that even the winds are even strong enough. So like just for reference, the insulation to Titan's surface is about one uh, watt per square meter during the summertime. And for Earth, it's typically 1,300 watts per square meter. Wow. So Titan's surface gets about 1,000 times less solar energy on the surface, too. Does that mean it should have really weak winds? Yeah, that was what they theorized. So that was what... So we didn't see waves early on. So we were kind of thinking that the winds were just too weak to create mm -hmm. waves because there is a certain wind speed they need to create any kind of ripple on the surface of, right. of a liquid yeah so at first that's what they had thought but once once uh once the north pole went into summertime that was when we realized that only in the summertime the winds seemed to be strong enough to create wind activity that could mm -hmm. create waves and wind swells i was wondering is there a huge backload of data that has yet to be analyzed because Cassini observed for two decades right about 15 well 12 years yeah oh, okay yeah so I mean it's it was retired a couple years ago but there's still probably a huge amount of data that hasn't been processed right so we've gotten all the data it's just the Cassini scientists on all the teams they took sort of the low-hanging fruit right and published, you know, the easy papers from cool observations. Right. Mm -hmm. From the first observations, and now grad students like myself just go through all the remaining data, 
and summarize it for my advisor <laughs> for the for the high hanging fruit. Yeah, I relate to that. <laughs> yeah, where we have to go through and be more nitpicky with the because the observations aren't as clean or easy to process right up. <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty amazing that this is something that we even can study anywhere besides Earth. So still kind of blown away by that. Thanks, Michael, so much for the awesome interview. It was such a pleasure to hear all about Glint on Titan and to learn what an interesting and dynamic system that moon is. Absolutely. And we're going to link to Michael's paper and also to an article in Sky and Telescope written about his work, and we'll throw in a link to a related astrobite as well. Thanks, Michael, for teaching us that sometimes all that glitters really is gold. <laughs> uh, don't think about that too hard. <laughs> <laughs> all right well you all know what time it is now it is the astro space sound of the ripples of the methane ocean noise time <laughs> that's right. my favorite time of the week <laughs> <laughs> Based on Alex's face, he recognizes this, but I can't tell if he was just dancing. I was just dancing. I have a, <laughs> I have a very not real guess and a slightly more realistic guess that is still probably wrong. Okay. My very wrong guess is it sounded like the interlude to like Beauty and the Beast or something. I don't know why that's the first thing that came to my mind. But then my slightly more real guess is that I thought that it maybe sounded like the sonification of a solar eclipse. Oh, interesting. The solar eclipse is today, right? Or the day we're recording? It was uh, Monday. Oh, darn. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Cut I, that missed post. <laughs> I didn't expect to see it anyways. Pretty far from here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's your guess, Will? I mean, we do a lot of sonifications, so I'm inclined to guess it's a sonification of something. Something that trails off, I don't know, maybe a, a supernova? That's actually right. Wow, I'm surprised that Alex didn't guess that. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Wait, 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 let's just, let's just cut it later. <clears throat> this was a uh, supernova sonification. I, I know, uh, 1987A, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, How did he know? <laughs> so this is a sonification of the supernova remnant Cas-A, Cassiopeia A. Oh. Uh, it was from data from the... Chandra X-ray Observatory, and the sonification was created by the Chandra X-ray Center that has actually a lot of really great sonifications. And so this object, just for a little background, consists of a neutron star that's surrounded by an expanding cloud of ejecta that were pushed away when the star exploded. And the light from the explosion is ex estimated to have reached the Earth first in the late 1600s. And so okay. that's when the supernova is explosion was actually visible and now it's just sort of this expanded version of what it used to be it's now about three parsecs across and so the sounds that you're hearing directly correspond to four elements in the supernova and we're hearing over time moving radially outward in the supernova remnant so we're starting at the center and then moving outwards and that's why the sound kind of tapers off over time wow so, yeah. so cool Pretty that's cool. incredible <laughs> what does this look like today uh, via hubble Describe it in words for our listeners. <laughs> it's very pretty. It looks sort of like a circle, which is what you would expect for a radially expanding cloud of gas. 
as projected to see on the sky. We'll have to link to it and uh, let everyone gawk at the beauty because I, I found a picture and wow, it's spectacular with all the different colors. Right. Supernova remnants are always gorgeous. Great sonification. Yeah, I tend to be more thematic, so I wanted to throw like a curveball this week, but it was actually guessed correctly, which was amazing. That never happened. Yeah, I don't think I've ever guessed it right before, so <laughs> we should start having prizes if we get it right. And then every time we get it wrong, we can build up the prize. Yeah, the prize could be that you bring the space on next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, detecting oceans on Titan is pretty wild, but... We had a spacecraft visit the Saturn system for 15 entire years. What if we could detect oceans on exoplanets where we were just able to look at spectroscopy from transits and eclipses for a very limited period of time as those planets rotated and orbited around their stars? Now that would be pretty crazy. All right, you've gotten me hooked. So uh, how soon are we going to be able to plan our beach vacation to an exoplanet? <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I think we should have a conversation after this about boundaries, but uh, we should maybe start by talking about the asteroid. <laughs> so we've talked on the show in the past about signposts in the search for extraterrestrial life. If we want to find alien life, what do we look for? Now, as we mentioned many times, because we only have a sample size of one, we're looking for life that would mimic life here at home. Mm -hmm. So on Earth, that means we want to find liquid water. Already a question on that. <laughs> so just to clarify, on these exoplanets, you're looking for water, unlike these methane oceans on Titan. Correct. We want to find oceans, and hopefully those oceans will be made of water. There are okay. a couple of deductive steps that you have to make in order to get to that from A to F there, but we'll go through <laughs> Yep. Not B, F. All right, Not B. There, like I said, a couple of steps. <laughs> How do we find liquid water on other planets? Well, you could maybe look at transmission spectra with an instrument like JWST. Mm -hmm. So transmission spectra are when the light from a host star travels through the planet's atmosphere as the planet passes in front of the star. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that over 99% of the water, at least in our atmosphere, is in the troposphere, the lowest layer in this atmosphere. That's actually the first 5% of the entire height of our atmosphere. The reason being that we have abundant cloud formation. And so above the cloud base, all the water is not really stable in the air. It precipitates out into clouds. So Exactly. And, and transmission spectra only characterize the outermost layers of an atmosphere. So yeah. transmission spectra, are it's tough to find signatures of liquid water based on that alone. So that brings us to a couple of different observational signatures, some tools that we can put in our toolkit to find liquid water. Now, the first one that I'm going to be talking about is called multi-phase longitudinal mapping. Okay. Sounds pretty fancy. <laughs> it does sound complex. This is actually something very similar to what we've covered on this show before. Milena, you brought an astrobite about exocartography, mm -hmm. namely, how can we constrain the geographic features of exoplanets? Oh, yeah. Okay. In that paper, you were talking about optical phase curves and using them to constrain the time-dependent albedo of a planet, its reflectivity over time. As it orbits or as it spins? Great point. In this research, they're looking at uh, how it spins at okay. a fixed location okay. in its orbit. Got it. In this paper, oceans... Yes, Melina, you have a question? How do you do that? You just turn off gravity. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Make some simplifying assumptions and you keep going. 
Okay, so this is modeling then. It's not just taking data. Exactly. So we'll get into the methodology in a little bit. But just to finish the deductive reasoning for a little bit, oceans generally have a higher albedo than water. So think of being at the beach, you see the reflection on the water versus not that much of a reflection, hopefully not much at all along the sand. Mm -hmm. And we can use that reflectivity, that higher albedo to detect oceans. But the problem is that false positives are possible. What about things like snow with a higher albedo than dry land? What about terrain with compositions that we've never seen before? What about different atmospheric effects that you have to account for? These are all very complex. And so this brings us to the second tool that we can use in our toolkit, which is ocean glint. This is the same Uh thing that Michael is using. So it turns out that oceans, because of their reflectivity, produce a time-dependent albedo based on the viewing angle which might be useful for unambiguously identifying a liquid ocean. This brings us to the astrobite that I'll be presenting today, How to Find Exoplanet Oceans by Briley Lewis, about a paper by Lustig Jaeger and others in 2019. Alex, the whole idea of glint is it's reflecting from a star. So you're saying the host star is going to reflect off of the oceans, and we can see that as the planet rotates, that sort of changes. Exactly. So the the right angles then have to be met. You can't look at the planet when it's directly in front of the star. Yes, this is a perfect point. Yeah, thank you for this question. So in actuality, in the models created by these authors, they looked at three different phase angles. One is called quadrature. When your viewing angle is perpendicular to the uh, straight line distance between the star and the planet. Okay. Second one is gibbous when you're at a 45 degree angle. And the last one is crescent when you have a 135 degree angle. Now, if you have observed glare on the Earth in our oceans, you probably know that a more extreme angle leads to uh, a stronger glare or glint, right? If you're standing above the ocean, you can see maybe straight through it. But if you have an extreme angle above 90 degrees, then you're probably going to see more glare. And that's what these authors found as well. So you're looking for variations in albedo where the albedo has to be relatively high, right? Because I would imagine if it was a lower albedo, then maybe it would just be clouds forming and dissipating or something else. But maybe if it's like going from pretty reflective to even more reflective to still pretty reflective, it's more likely an ocean. Yeah, so you you make a couple of very good points in there. And that's how do you distinguish atmospheric effects from the time-dependent albedo signature from an ocean. Right. Mm -hmm. It turns out this is extremely hard to do. First, we should probably explain what you would expect to see if you had no glint at all. Okay. If you had a planet with a perfectly mapped surface, where the reflectance of the planet is completely independent of viewing angle, you have what you call Lambertian reflectance. Mm Mm-hmm. And that means... That means you have a perfect matte surface. You have no deviations according to viewing angle. It looks the same no matter where you're you're sitting. Got it. Now, the authors found, this is the big result, that you get Lambertian reflectance at the land masses, but you get deviations from that reflectance at the oceans. That kind of makes sense with what I'd expect because on Earth, the land is not very reflective. Right, so the albedo has a strong time-varying component as the glint from the oceans is disrupted by the landmass. And so 
This brings us to the question that you had, Malena, is that how do you distinguish this deviation from atmospheric effects? The hope is that through several rotations of this planet, you'll see the same deviation from Lambertian, whereas clouds would dissipate and change, and this deviation signature might not be consistent across all orbits. Yes, Malena. What if you have a really mountainous terrain on a planet or something, though, where it casts shadows? Because I would imagine that would also alter the albedo, and you wouldn't even need to have oceans. Yeah, great question. So the authors used the Virtual Planetary Library Earth model to simulate Earth weather conditions and generate optical light curves of the Earth as it might appear five parsecs away. Now, there are a lot of simplifying assumptions in using the Earth as an analog for an actual exoplanetary system. If you have giant mountainous terrain that's uh, not exactly akin to the terrain on Earth, then you're, you're right. You might see some shadowing effects that they didn't take into consideration here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, and so uh, this paper I thought was really cool because it did both a forward model to simulate the observational signatures of this phenomenon, but then they also did the inverse model to recover the albedo slices across the surface of the planet. That's so smart. It's very cool. And they actually developed a package, a software package that you can go and download. It's called the Surface Albedo Mapping Using Rotational Inference, or Samurai software for <laughs> short, that can allow you to do these kinds of uh, models as well. So when you say forward modeling, you mean they can determine what observational data you would get based on an ocean glint exactly so they simulated the earth they figured what kind of light curves might you get at five parsecs and then added noise and then based on these light curves what kind of uh, properties can you get out of the uh, phases i'm curious because michael was looking at these waves that are just centimeters in scale so in their model were they looking at earth-like waves and would we maybe expect to not be able to distinguish the glint as well if it was on centimeter-like scales? That's also a very good question. I believe that the glint phenomenon that they're observing is due to the rotation of the planet itself, whereas the glint that was observed by Michael was because of the changes in the surface in the ocean itself. Oh, I see what you mean. So they're just trying to see if there are oceans to begin with. Exactly. Exactly. Makes sense. I mean, at that distance, that would be an incredible detection. Right. Right. So there are a couple caveats to the study, as with any study. The first is that just because we've identified an ocean, like we said before, doesn't mean that it's particularly water, right? You could have a giant methane ocean that is leading to glint, and you don't know you have uh, H2O. And so the authors warn that uh, water absorption features in the spectrum that they take would definitely help provide this smoking gun signature. Of course. And then in addition, they focused on an extremely narrow spectroscopic window to model these observations between 0.68 and 0.8 microns. And they also took spectra hourly for a hundred hours in order to get these signatures. And that's pretty observationally (laughs) intensive, but, but I will say that they note that the wavelength wavelength range that they covered could capture A, an O2 signature, and B, a potential vegetation signature as well. So if you're looking for life on other planets, then you might want to look at that window anyway. So it's not like these signatures, it's not like these observations are just going to this one study alone. They could provide the smoking gun in three different ways for life on another planet. 
Well, Alex, it sounds like an excellent, you know, first effort at what will hopefully be a discovery years from now. Definitely. Yeah. Fingers crossed with these next generation missions, we'll actually find an observational signature like this. Yeah, that would be incredible. It's amazing to me that as we learn about, you know, oceans within our own solar system, we're already beginning to consider what about oceans many, many planetary systems away. I love it. So I think now would be a good time to throw in our one sentence summaries. Um, let's see, Milena, you want to go first? Yeah, I'm actually going to let Michael give his one sentence summary of his work to study the dynamics of Titan's oceans. Um, I'd say the main thing is that we shouldn't underestimate the potential for dynamics on surfaces. Oftentimes, planetary scientists have wanted to think worlds are dead just because they don't seemingly have geologic activity or they're not or they're not active on the surface. But my research ultimately is shown that even the uh, even the liquid bodies show a lot of dynamics to it. So it helps to drive the rains, the river flow, and all sorts of interesting uh, oceanographic phenomenon. I don't know if that was exactly one sentence, but we'll let it stand. <laughs> <laughs> it was descriptive. It was semi-short. <laughs> Alex, could you give us your one-sentence summary? There's a glimmer of hope for finding exoplanet oceans with the next generation of space-based telescopes, but it'll require continuous observation and a lot of luck. Glimmer of hope? Did y'all get that? <laughs> Come on. Very <laughs> good. A critic. Tough crowd. Tough crowd. <laughs> One of the things that amazed me when I first started to learn about astronomy was how rare liquids are in the solar system outside of, you know, the Earth. Um, and, I mean, it's really because you need an atmosphere to have liquids because you need the right pressures and at low pressures, everything's either a gas or a solid. I mean, should we be more open-minded about life without liquid water or big pools of liquid water? What about gas? Hmm. I'm wondering if there are organisms on Earth that just survive from, like, water vapor and don't actually use mm. liquid water in any way. And I'm not actually sure, but it's an interesting question. I think there are organisms that don't drink water, but still have plenty of liquid water. Right, they mm -hmm. use the liquid water in some way. They get it in a different way, or they get it through their food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would not be surprised at all if there was an organism out there that didn't need water in its liquid form. But I think because we don't know of anything else that doesn't need water at all, we at least start with looking for water. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? I, I, I get the, the motivation. I attended a really interesting talk recently about the recent detection of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus and the potential for how life could survive because the phosphine was detected at very high altitudes. And if indeed there is life that high up, it can't really stay there for long. So there's some idea that there's a, a, a cycle where spores can get pushed up, they're inert, and then they sort of get a little bit of, of vapor or some sort of, of liquid in, a, in an upper cloud region. They become stable, they, they do a life cycle reproduce, and then they sort of fall back down and become inert again. I forget the name of the book, but Carl Sagan actually uh, hypothesized a species of alien life that might do this exact thing that you're referring to. So huh. it might be able to dynamically change its buoyancy and survive in different ranges within the atmosphere, taking from various layers as it evolves through its life cycle. Hmm. 
It's amazing. Carl Sagan wrote like legit science papers doing real research and yet also wrote these incredible books bordering on science fiction and and various different ideas. An an impressive uh, polymath of a man. I also want to make the point that even though we might not know of a lot of liquid water outside of our planet, we know that water in general in any form is quite abundant. We know of massive clouds of water out there and ice water associated with dust grains and gaseous water are very common. So I think that the fact that it can happen here and we know that water is abundant elsewhere, I think it's not too extreme of an idea to think that we would expect liquid water elsewhere. Right. Right. All the giant planets in our solar system have abundant water. It's way, way deep down, but they have plenty of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also interesting that given these predictions with Venus's atmosphere and Carl Sagan's ideas that usually giant planets are sort of not even considered as places to look for life. And I wonder whether that's a good assumption or not. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess it really has to be a totally different life paradigm than we're used to. Mm -hmm. For sure, because if you think of species existing, I mean, think of a jellyfish in the water taking advantage of like the currents and things like that to move around and I don't know, if you think of the air as a, a fluid in just another form, just different densities, then it's not that far-fetched to think that there are species that could do the same and exist solely in, in the air. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially given that there are giant planets at all orbital distances that have been found. It's not just like the ones yes. that are as far as Jupiter and Saturn. Right. There are a lot that are closer into the star and thus warmer. Right. So They might have water higher up. Yeah. And it might be possible they could have water vapor at a region of, of the atmosphere that is warm and, and not too high pressure mm-hmm. that that we could even have bacterial life. So, yeah, it's an interesting prospect. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of this you could do in the lab to see what the extreme end of bacterial life is on Earth with only water vapor and no actual liquid water supplied. Yeah. Another theme I had thought about Uh, from the stuff we've discussed today, is how uh, scientists, astronomers will extract every useful drop of data, no pun intended, from a mission. And, you know, the the obvious example is Michael, you know, was using Cassini data. And, you know, he mentioned in his interview that all the folks on the Cassini team published all of the easy results, all of the low-hanging fruit. But there's so much great data. People will be puzzling over for decades. And at this point, he would probably like some fresh data, as would a lot of people, which won't be possible for some time yet. But is it worth it to keep pouring effort into getting more and more out of the old data? Or when does that return on investment stop? I think it probably depends on what you're looking for, because there are certain phenomena that I don't think you can just easily pick out of new data. Or, I mean, I suppose if you sent some sort of spacecraft to take an actual video of what Titan's oceans looked like or something (laughs) like that, then that would be a much more direct and easier way to do it. Mm -hmm. But it would just take such a long time to do. I don't know. You would learn a lot of other things as well, but there are only so many spacecraft that you can send. Maybe we should just be shooting CubeSats all around the solar system. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's an idea. It's been talked about. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it also speaks to, like, a decreased budget associated with space missions, and you you have to get the bang for your buck, so you try and think of all the different ways you can take advantage of the specific limited set of observations that you're able to take. And so I think that, yeah, if you're doing, like, fundamental research into 
these phenomena that might have observational signatures and you don't really know if they'll be detectable, then it's a quite investment. You don't know if it'll have a payoff. But at the end of the day, if you find a signal that can be unambiguously associated with something for the same set of observations that don't require you to take anything new, then that could potentially benefit astronomers from here on out, right, for the next many generations to come. That's an excellent point. And at the same time, I actually kind of think that's part of what makes astronomy fun, like the not low-hanging fruit, because it forces you to be creative and to really be innovative about how you solve a problem. I was thinking about in the context of like when you buy a new pair of glasses or sunglasses, then they ask you if you want that like non-reflective coating, right? The anti-glare coating. And I feel like it would be pretty easy on a space mission to just be like, oh, we're going to coat the lenses and this anti-glare coating, you know, we want better observations. But then if you try to cut out that glint, then that you're actually (laughs) losing a lot of this information that can tell you a ton about the planet. And so it's just cool, something that can be so small and and annoying to one group of people (laughs) to another group of people could be the thing that tells you exactly what you need to know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a great place to end it for today. So that concludes episode 26, Surfing on a Dream. The astrobite that Alex brought is going to be linked below. We'll link to Michael's paper, a summary of his paper, and a third astrobite about a different paper if you want to learn more about Glint on Titan Seas. Do you like our show? Do you have suggestions to make you like it more? Or do you want to just say hi? You can send us an email at astrosoundbites at gmail.com. Please say hi. Will's continually asking for vacation time with me. (laughs) (laughs) Someone send him a pen pal. (laughs) If your friends like astronomy, tell them to listen on our website, astrosoundbites.com, or on Apple, Spotify, Google, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Thank you.